Michael Kelly, and you're listening to General Intellect Unit. This time, we're picking up part two of our discussion of The Capitalo Scene by Jason Moore with Bob Newbar. If you didn't catch the first part of this series, I'd recommend pausing this episode, going back one, and starting from there. Otherwise, this episode may not make a lot of sense. Coming up next in our release schedule, we have a two-part episode with Tom O'Brien from the From Alpha to Omega podcast, where we will be discussing planning with labor time calculation. After those two episodes, we'll be releasing a third part of this discussion of Capitalism, where we reconvene with Bob to go over some of the responses to Moore's work and to try to situate this stuff in the current uh, coronavirus nightmare. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. We are back. We're back with a. Uh, we're back on part two. Um, we're back on back on the moor. Uh, Capitalo scene part two: accumulation by appropriation and the centrality of unpaid work and energy. Yes. Yeah. Th- this is this is heavy on details of like I, I think the part one was kind of a, a, laying out some of the the groundwork for for the g- the gist of the theory, and this gets into some of the really really interesting meaty details of it. Um, so Bob, what's uh, what, what what what's kind of the gist here? What's he what's he on about with um, uh, accumulation by appropriation? Yeah. So to me, this is. I mean, I think it's a pretty clear attempt to think through. I, I mean, he, in this more is one of a of a bunch of Marxist thinkers who have tried to think through Marx's um, primitive accumulation concept. Also, and so you can you can, and the idea that uh, you know Marx sort of sees um, when a when when capitalism kind of takes root or when capitalists force uh, 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 an area to become capitalist, there's always an, an attempt or necessity to uh, dispossess uh, non-capitalist producers um, from their their motive, you know, their uh, uh, their you know their productive forces, like their, whether their land or their or territory they live on, and so on. And uh, but but Marx sort of saw that originally, I think, as a as a something that it was almost like an original sin mm-hmm. of capitalist development. So, you know, since Marx, a whole bunch of thinkers have tried to think this through as something that actually happens repeatedly, maybe systemically or cyclically, uh, as when capitalism goes under crisis, it needs to find more territory to appropriate. It needs to bring larger geographical areas within its domain. It might need to commodify, uh, uh, appropriate and commodify goods that uh, or, or, or things or phenomena that weren't appropriated. And so, you know, Rosa Luxemburg, that's a huge part of her theory of imperialism. David Harvey worked through that theory, I think, uh, with neoliberalism, thinking through accum- calling it accumulation by dispossession, that neoliberalism involved finding the, you know, the, the ex-communist world or intensifying the commodification of the biosphere or genomes or whatever. Um, and also some indigenous decolonial scholarship in Canada, um, in particular, Glenn Coltard in his book, Red Skin, White Mass, talks about uh, primitive accumulation as something that is fundamental to the Canadian colonial state and capitalism, extractive capitalism in Canada, right? That, that colonialism, uh, 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 colonialism doesn't end precisely because capitalism constantly needs to dispossess indigenous 
people of their lands and resources in order to keep accumulation going, something we're seeing in, in Canadian politics right now with beefs between the oil and gas industry and indigenous peoples. Um, and so more, I think, is fitting into that history. He's trying to say he's trying to say that we need to get past Marx just thinking that uh, accumulation by dispossession isn't primitive, like primitive accumulation. It doesn't just happen as this original sin. He's inserting himself into a a long line of Marxist and even just Marx-inspired thinkers uh, in saying that, uh, no, it's not just exploiting paid labor. It's not just exploiting workers. The need to constantly appropriate both um, uh, appropriate both a uh, uh, people and non-human nature or the non-human world and 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 basically just go out and plunder it um, as a source of is a constant source of value for capitalism. He's thinking through this, I think, in a, in, a, in an extremely deep and interesting way. Very much so, and I think it's um, like to kind of emphasize this point as well. Like he's kind of zooming out pretty far in that um, labor power, like commodity labor power, isn't the only game in town. Like that work is a thing that happens in general in the biosphere, and he um, he points out this like uh, tripartite division of work uh, between labor power unpaid human work and the work of nature that all of these three three things are important that they're there and they're all interlocked and that the the productivity of labor power is contingent on the um quote productivity of the unpaid human work and the work of nature and the ways in which it's accumulated and and uh, devoured yeah um, a lot of this initial section is kind of a retread of um of some of the setup from the the first essay uh one thing that jumped out at me was this like thing of like he's going on about like the unity of the cyberneticist and it's like yeah what the what the fuck's his problem here it's just like it seems like such a weird out of left field kind of curveball he's like just calls out cybernetics as like oh yeah that's that, that's just duelist nonsense or whatever read pickering <laughs> uh yeah he says uh he says uh uh, talking about the Anthropocene, uh, it has a capacity to unify humans and the Earth system within a singular narrative. There is little question that a unified narrative is urgently needed. How it unifies the Earth system and humanity within a singular narrative is precisely its weakness and the source of its falsifying power. For the unification is not dialectical. It is the unity of the cyberneticist. A unity of fragments, an idealist unity that severs the constitutive historical relations that have brought the planet to its present age of extinction. My dude, just read fucking Bayer, come on. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 I don't know where this is coming from. I, I don't. I don't think the, the the accusation that cybernetics is insufficiently dialectical is uh, is really holds that much weight. Uh, but. Um, I don't know. It's kind of a throwaway comment, uh, which is mainly aimed at, you know, doing a dig at, at, at the Anthropocene. I mean, I don't know too much about cybernetics like 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 uh, uh, you two folks, but um, it sounds to me like he's just he just recently rewatched Terminator 2. <laughs> it's just like, unlike the T-1000 and Skynet, you know, like, uh, unlike the dark dystopia that awaits uh, us if we follow our cybernetic overlords. There's a, so I, I, yeah, that's, that's a weird, that's just a weird sort of thing. Um, there's a couple of interesting points in the setup here um, that will be relevant later when we come back to the um, the kind of critiques of this. Um, he sort of riffing on this whole, like, oh, you're, y'all are too too dualist for my liking thing he uh, kind of rejects um 
what he calls like influential metaphors like ecological footprint and metabolic rift, which I think gets Foster's hackles up pretty bad and, and gets him mad. Um, so I, I don't know. I think he's, he's got some, there's something to that, right? Like the notion of ecological footprint is definitely a kind of thing of like, oh, nature is pristine and external and we tread upon it from above. Uh, yeah. But the, the metabolic rift stuff is, again, I don't think we can dwell on it here, but we'll come back to it in the a third episode about the critiques of this kind of thing because there's, there's quite a bit to work out there. But it is it is here. He does call them out explicitly. He's like, you know, he's he's a re- he, this Moore guy seems like a real asshole in some places. Like he's he's just like bringing these like just grudges to the table. I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean this this whole thing does play out a, a, a bit like a. Um like a Mad Max Thunderdome of, uh, of, 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 you know, some, some very prickly characters more definitely being one and the people that he's going after turn out to be quite as well, maybe even more so. So, so is, I mean, it, that, that does turn it into a bit of a, a slug match. It'd be interesting to talk later about, uh, um, how, you know, you know, is the, you know, like the, is, is the ecological footprint, uh, metaphor, the, 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 the same type of metaphor as a metabolic rift. I don't know if, if I, I necessarily think it is, but I think he makes a very interesting argument, and I think he makes a very interesting argument to think through what is implied in these types of metaphors in general, regardless of where you come down. I think that that point is taken, uh, made very strongly, and probably Certainly. in a very important way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a, there's another uh, interesting point that he brings up in the introduction area here is this uh, point about uh, communism, uh, because of course, uh, you know, more is uh, advocating this idea of the, uh, capitalocene, um, and an obvious objection, one I've heard made at symposia and stuff is, well, we don't need to worry about that idea because obviously communism existed and it was just as shit as capital at, at, you know, uh, producing, uh, anthropogenic, uh, environmental destruction. Um, so more kind of just like uh, it, this is like this is a kind of obvious objection, one that uh, easily comes to mind as soon as the capital Ocene idea is presented. Um, and he says that, uh, well, communism did not overwhelm the developing tendencies of history reproduced through the long durée of the capitalist world ecology. Uh, so like. Yeah, ca- uh, communism happened, but it really didn't change much in the long durée. Uh, so long durée is this this thing, this idea that comes out of the uh, Annals school of uh, histor- of history, uh, and it's like you know ignore the 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 short term events, the the kind of stuff that you would find on Revolution's podcast. Uh, just look at the the big time scale, um, and at that scale. Uh, you know, I guess it's justifiable to say that uh, 20th century communism uh, had no uh, appreciable effect on the trajectory of capitalism uh, in or or if it did, it just it aggravated existing tendencies. Yeah, I mean, it, it lasted about on about the same scale as like uh, Athenian fucking Sartitian democracy, like 80 years or so. So, yeah, kind, kind of a blip in the historical, like grand historical sense, you know. Um, it felt it felt a little bit. I don't know what you guys uh, folks thought, what you folks thought, but uh, uh, and, and Kyle, I mean, uh, I don't know what you th- think about uh, think about this, but that that little piece. Every once in a while, I'll read something like an academic journal article, and I'll just be like, 
Oh, that that was a response to a reviewer. Yeah. Oh, one hundred percent. That was or, a response like, to a reviewer. He, you know, didn't, he didn't want to talk about the Soviet Union at all. He didn't want to talk about uh, Maoist great transformation at all. But uh, that was a condi- that was a condition of. Her. I'm not saying for sure. Apparently, James Moore might be listening. Uh, we don't. I don't know. Um, so uh, if I ever see it, uh, uh, but, on, it, but if that's the case. <laughs> yeah, ask yeah. us, uh, you know, you know, because I'll, I'll say like that, at least what, if I was writing something, not that I would write something as as epic as this this stuff is, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, sometimes it's like, uh, that's just something I needed a paragraph uh, to make some sense of that because they weren't going to let me get uh, to the. Uh... <laughs> yeah, uh, so it, like, I, 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 I think you're right. It could be that or it could just be like being heckled at academic conferences. <laughs> yeah, OK. So, and, you know, shit. Yeah. needing to, to, to get a shot in against uh, those those folks. Um, <laughs> but there there is a little bit more substance uh, to what uh, Moore is saying here. Um, so he, he says that, uh, you know, communism was basically like the tributary mode of production. It wasn't really socialism. Um it also was highly integrated into the world market and became progressively more so to the point that uh, it caused a like the the collapse of uh, like Polish debt servicing basically caused the like what was it mid nineties uh, financial crisis that hit the uh, like the, the prelude to the dot com mm-hmm. crisis right um yeah so. So, uh, so you know, it was sufficiently integrated into capitalism that uh, it, it's not really significant to this this conversation. Um, and and I was just thinking, like maybe you could link this kind of attempt to describe it as like tributary mode of production to like Tickton's uh, non mode of production argument about the USSR. Uh, so if, if you if anyone wants to like you know hear more about that, there is uh, some discussion about it on Swampside. You can go check out. I think the episode is called "A Clock Without a Spring" or something along those lines. Yeah, I think that's it. That sounds like yeah. a great, pretty, pretty good, pretty good stuff. Um, sounds like an awesome Ray Bradbury story. Sounds like a title. <laughs> sounds like a yeah, title right. title of a really great Ray, Ray Bradbury story. Yeah. Uh, um, so it seems that it picks up properly in uh, the section dualism dialectics and the problem of uh, value. So, and he, he gets into this kind of like value relational ontology stuff. So, so Kyle, what's what's all this stuff about? This this is pretty intricate stuff, right? Right, right. Uh, 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 oh, this is value form stuff. Holy shit! Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna have trouble here. Yeah. Oh, right. The value form. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, first of all. Uh, <laughs> for the listeners, just want to give a brief description of what the value form is, because it is a thing that is thrown a lot, uh, thrown around in Marxist conversations quite a bit, uh, especially by value formers, um, the, the the people who like hold this up as like the key to revolutionizing Marxism. We should also clarify that that's that's not what's going on here. This this isn't like capital V, capital F value former guy. This this is not what's happening here. Yeah, this is, yeah. Moore is not a value former. Uh, the value form is just a important concept that Marx brings up in Chapter One of Capital. Um, so uh, essentially, what Marx does with the value form uh, is works through logically. Uh, various stages of the exchange process, uh, working from the exchange of one commodity for another in barter terms, 
uh, up towards uh, the universal equivalent of money. Um, and what he is doing there is establishing a logical um, framework that will describe the behavior of capital independent of the agency of individual traders or participants in the market. Um, so the logic of the value form uh, conditions behavior in capitalism beyond just like, oh, yeah, we use money because it's convenient to have a common unit of account. Like That is not untrue, <laughs> right? It's not untrue that like, you know, uh, a dollar bill has certain use values that make it uh, valuable to traders. Um but uh, beyond that, there is the logic of the value form, which states that, you know, we pretty much need to set up these equivalence relations uh, that will allow us to universally exchange commodities with one another and to commodify pretty much anything. And so the, the commo like this is the form that value takes. And the commodity, the commodity is is the form of value, but then it's kind of apex form is is the money commodity. Um, so that's that's all we really mean is that like value is a thing in society. Um, it takes the form of this this stuff, and this is this is what what value is when it moves around. Um, so yeah, so that's that's the value form. Um, if you want to read more about that, go check out uh, chapter one of Capital Volume One. Uh, that's that's where Marx brings it all out. It's that whole linen coat thing mm -hmm. that it, every Marxist knows a as a joke. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I just remember when I started uh, reading Capital, and I was like, "Is the whole fucking book going to be like this?" Jesus Christ! <laughs> I don't want to hear about that. I, I still remember hearing, and I don't know. I, I don't know if this is uh, apocryphal or whatever. If this is true, but that that. That, that the coat was uh, some people argue the coat was so important because in fact uh, Marx was so broke he didn't have a really good coat until Engels bought him one um, so that he could like go out in the cold and then go to the London Library or whatever. Uh, and so uh, it just, was, it was, it was. He had a coat, but he had to keep pawning his coat <laughs> um, because he was so poor. Oh, fuck. Uh, so that may have been what inspired the coat to be the like paradigmatic commodity that is it's brought up right. in uh, the first stage of the value form analysis. Uh, it's like what's on his mind. You know, Marx, Marx, like OG fail son, uh, got respect. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, true king. Yeah. <laughs> The true king. So that's the setup for this value relational ontology stuff. <laughs> so we haven't even got to the good part yet. It's, um, I kind of struggled with this bit because, like, oh, I don't know, like, it, it's hard to internalize this sort of stuff. But, like, so, so what's going on here? Uh, okay. So I think that the, the core here uh, is where he's talking about the relationship of cheap, uh, cheap nature to the rest of uh, the economic system, the capitalist system, right? Um, so he says, uh, cheap nature is at the core of capitalism's audacious and peculiar combination of productivism and exterminism. Uh, this too works on a double register. One is cheap nature as economic process. In this, cheap natures comprise those necessary elements of capitalist reproduction, re slash production 
above all, labor, food, energy, and raw materials. So those are the four cheaps we talked about in the last episode. Um, cheap nature accumulation strategies affect a rising ecological surplus when three changes occur simultaneously. One, the value composition of the big four inputs declines. So the value composition, uh, it, like so, you know, uh, in Marx's in Marxology, in Marx talk, people often throw around the term the organic composition. There is another uh, composition that is relevant to the functioning of capitalism called the value composition. And essentially what he's saying there is like the value of the big four, uh, the big four cheaps, the cheaps, the four cheaps declines relative to uh, constant capital, right? Uh, it's cheapened, yeah. Um, and so therefore, uh, it's basically like you're spending less on your inputs and the same amount on your machinery, so your profitability goes up, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's what they're saying. Uh, bio, uh, number two is biophysical throughput rises, which is an interesting point. Like you can't have increased capital accumulation without increasing biophysical throughput. There has, there has to actually be stuff that is worked. Now, this runs contrary to a lot of the thinking that uh, originated in the 90s about immaterial uh, production and the idea that, you know, we were going to have commodities that had no physical form and therefore we could kind of decouple from the previous pattern of resource extraction. And, and somewhat somewhat similar too to the uh, e some of the capitalist eco-modernist arguments too, right? Like there's a, there's a there's a kind of concept that uh, actually more and the people and the other green marxists that he t he tangles with, one of the things that they're very interested in is problematizing the way that capital accounts for value or the way that capitalist ideology, which is to say neoclassical economics, accounts for value. And in, and in that sense, there's a kind of like reification, right? Because it's all kind of crystallized in the money form, things that you don't pay for appear as though they are invisible to the production process. They, they appear as though they don't. So, so you're able to abstract away the biophysical throughputs. Like how much, how, how much work did the worker actually do? How much time did uh, the unpaid uh, housewife take to, rate, to, to feed the, the, the male factory worker? You know, how much uh, work uh, was the so-called ecosystem uh, uh, service doing, right? The, like in terms of the, you know, maybe the water systems uh, or, or, or the, the lake's ability to keep absorbing uh, uh, pollution from the factory uh, without just totally, uh, you know, the, the complete system just collapsing or whatever, right? And so uh, uh, neoclassical economics is really bad at, at completely unpricing or like just assuming that anything without a price um, doesn't count. And in fact, there is a kind of, in bourgeois economics, it has been an attempt over the last pretty much 40 years, more like 30 years, to rectify that in, in a way that I think more and I think the, some of the green Marxists that he argues with would, would consider it to be a total mystification, which is you just got to price the externalities. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've spoken to people who work for like environmental ministries and went through that whole dog and pony show with trying to price every single thing under the sun. Uh, but it, 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 it doesn't work. It doesn't work. <laughs> well, no, because what, what Moore is pointing out is that it's that, that the, the, 
what 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 the neoclassical economic uh, economist trying to price um, things that are externalized, right? Like try to price the, the so-called goods that are not included in the price calculus. It all assumes based on the kind of the magic of uh, neoclassical uh, economic accounting um, that all, as Moore points out in this article, all of these potential goods are actually exchangeable. All the factors of production are exchangeable because essentially because they can all be exchanged for money, as I think would be the radical critique of that. It, it, it fools you into thinking that there's not some some kind of uh, biophysical specificity of these unpriced goods that you're that you're that all this economic value you're producing actually depends on that. It's not just a mistake. Mm-hmm. Right? It's the, not the just he, an yeah. accident. The way he puts it specifically is that the condition of some work being valued is that most work is not. That um, if and you, if you kind of think through it, it's like if everything was priced and valued, the entire thing would be a zero sum closed system. Right, there, there wouldn't be differentials, and so what, what we have is a tower of, of of work or a tower of value, where at the very top tier you have commodity labor, which is fully fully highly valued or whatever, and then going down the way, it's not though. Like you 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 have to remember that this this kind of gets kicked off with Marx's critique of surplus value, right? Like his idea of surplus value is already pointing out. That there is unpaid work. Yes, 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 yes. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's a relative differential between like that that realm in which that kind of that kind of surplus is extracted, um, and that that is relatively unpaid. But then further down the the tier, we have like properly like unpaid, but like sort of compensated through the wage fund, whatever, and then down through to like free nature and so on. Like there's this kind of like. But the, the the existence of those differentials is the thing that makes this system work. Like in quotes, like it's it's predicated on there being a split between things that are valued inside the circle of economic relations and stuff that is under slash not valued that's outside of the circle but is dragged in uh, for free. Um, so the condition of the condition of surplus value accumulation uh, in commodity production is like it is hard dependent on the existence of these cheap natures or the the production of the cheap natures like you have to go and actively cheapen things in order to make the inner loop work yes that's it's right. a hell of it's a hell of an insight like i i, I was I, I like this um it's good stuff uh, me too usually, usually i find some of these um some of these kind of discussions around uh uh value uh production um they can be a little sometimes they can make my eyes glaze over a little bit <laughs> but but i found this really interesting you know i found this to be quite uh, you know, even while I was working through it, I was like, well, this is this is an interesting way to try to fit this stuff together, you know? Yeah. There's another um, line here that I think is really important that, like, um, the value form and value relations are not identical. So the value form, yes. the commodity form of value is a narrower thing than value relations. It's it's the relations between paid and unpaid work that are the, are the main, the, the real main show. But that's all happening off screen. Um, you know, it's 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 the, mm-hmm. the the value form stuff is a much more narrow uh, thing, but that's in the language of the system. That's the only stuff it can value and account for. But it being able to do that is predicated on not valuing the other stuff. It's all very kind of like in in internally self referential. Yeah, there's a there's a simultaneous way in which the value form structures the activity of capitalism, but then also its limitation structures the uh activity of capitalism as well it's it's a kind of uh uh self-limitation uh that needs to be enacted in order to uh maintain uh growth 
um, and, and, and profitability. Um, there, there's a lot in this section that is recapitulation of previous arguments from the first article. There is a point that he brings up that's, that's quite important. Uh, he says, uh, so he's recapitulating a whole section about humanity as a natural force um, and the problems of green arithmetic and so on. Uh, and he says, uh, this entails a reconstruction of capitalism's value relations to encompass exploitation, surplus value, right, within, a more, uh, within more expansive movements of appropriation. So you have exploitation is the standard activity of capitalism that you find in Capital Volume 1 uh, with more expansive movements, movements of appropriation, which is the primitive accumulation or accumulation by dispossession uh, that, that, you know, uh, as you said, Luxembourg and Harvey are really known for, for, for bringing up. Um, the extra economic mobilization of unpaid work slash energy in service to capital accumulation. In this approach, unpaid work comprises work, energy, and life reproduced largely outside the cash nexus, yet indispensable to capital accumulation. I speak of work slash energy rather than simply work because we are dealing with work in a broadly biophysical sense, comprising the activity and potential energy of rivers and soils, of oil and coal deposits, of human-centered production and reproduction. Um, so uh, this is uh, why work slash energy is in the title of the article, right? Mm. Um, it, like, you know, we could just say work, but... It's just highlighting the extra human dimension to this. It's it's very like um, leaning on like thermodynamics um, and stuff. Like it's it's a biophysical uh, process. Um, yeah, which is a very compelling reframing. Um, absolutely. Um, um, so uh, to get a little bit more into the value stuff, um, he says uh, my reading of value relations co-produced through human and extra-human work follows Marx's conception of abstract social labor as the substance of value. Uh, that common recognition, however, is insufficient. So when we talk about uh, abstract social labor, it it's the work you do within the context of the entire capitalist productive system. So, you know, when we've we've previously sort of talked about Hayek and how he describes like how information is is conveyed through exchange, that kind of stuff. Um, that's what abstract social labor is about. It's it's not your concrete. I am making a hamburger and selling it to someone. It's how that counts within the entirety of capitalism. Um and that's the substance of value. It's it's the substance of value is not in the hamburger you make. It is kind of a, a spectral existence that is distributed throughout the entirety of the capitalist system. So he says uh, that common recognition, however, is insufficient. While Marx's political economy has taken value to be an economic phenomenon with s systemic implications. I wish to ask whether and how the inverse formulation may be equally plausible. So it's a systemic phenomenon with economic implications, right? Um, can we not say that value relations are a systemic phenomenon with a pivotal economic moment? The accumulation of abstract social labor is possible only to the degree that unpaid work, human and extra human, can be appropriated by forces and relations that are not themselves economic. That... He goes on uh, this final section here. 
the value form, the commodity, and its substance, abstract social labor, depend upon relations that configure wage labor with its necessarily more expansive conditions of reproduction, unpaid work. So, uh, yeah, um, that's, that's to just dig a little bit into the detail as to what we were just, just summarizing there. Uh, that, that's the, the meat of the argument. It's crunchy. It's good. I like it. I think I'll need to reread this one to fully internalize all this, but like that, it, this definitely, I think he's going in a very good direction here. Um, oh, and I was just going to bring up a real, real quick, um, when this is, uh, you know, when I was reading this, when I was reading this stuff and I've mentioned this in the notes a few times, um, you really, you know, I, I can't see any citations of, of this dude, but it really does seem to be strongly related to a previous uh, green Marxist thinker who was one of the earlier folks to try to, to theorize um, this sort of stuff, James O'Connor, um, for who had this who he had a pretty uh, pithily titled book called Natural Causes um, uh, that was about uh, trying to think through ecology and capitalist crisis, and uh, his take was very sort of similar to this. It was the idea that that there was uh, that capitalism all, didn't just have uh, uh, productive forces; uh, it had these conditions of production that were kind of the unspoken bedrock of the production of value that weren't counted in, uh, in um, capitalist accounting, um, but actually were integral to producing value. And capital, capitalism tended to degrade those, those conditions of production over time, right? Like uh, whether, whether it's like the social system um, or the, or the uh, non-human nature, whatever you want to call it. Um, and his theory of crisis is a little similar to Moore. So I just thought I'd point that out if any listeners wanted to dig a little deeper because if you go back to the late 90s, this dude, James O'Connor, is writing kind of similar stuff. And I'm always surprised that I don't see it referenced by Moore, who would, ha would have had to have known. Um, and I think I read that he was in kind of the similar milieu. Like he may have been – he may have come up in a similar milieu as, as O'Connor. So that people have been trying to think through this in terms of value production for, for a little while now. Not consistently, but, but right. you know, right. fits and starts over time. So uh... – we go on to the next section then. Uh, it's uh, nature, uh, geopower, and capitalogenic appropriation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a, a lot going on there. Uh, yeah, uh, the, the the point that I kind of skipped over in the discussion of the value thing there is he, he does point out that like, you know, to see uh, the value form stuff as an economic moment in a broader systemic phenomenon is to look at things like uh, the long history of political exchange, quote unquote, between the owners of capital and the purveyors of imperial violence uh, from Genoa and Castile in 1492 to the Washington Consensus. Um, so, you know, this is going to get into uh, one of the major uh, points that this uh, specific article is addressing, which is the way in which the state um, is able to construct and um, structure space in ways that uh, capital on its own cannot do, right? Uh, you, 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 like Bloomberg can run to become president, but Bloomberg is not going to himself go out <laughs> outside of the context of the state, just like Bloomberg Corp and start <laughs> structuring fucking American society yeah. for the purposes of uh, accumulation through like, you know, reorganizing space, right? Like the Bloomberg terminal did a lot to do that, 
but Bloomberg didn't hire Pinkertons to go out and do this thing for him outside the state. There's there's this kind of notion that like um, uh, capital and like uh, exploitation in the realm of capital and economics kind of like flattens out time, like it kind of makes abstract time. Whereas like the the state is tasked with making abstract space and like partitioning things up um, in the realm of nature to uh, to prepare the way for accumulation or prepare the way for appropriation so that accumulation can be done right because the appropriation has to come first in order for the accumulation in the realm of commodity production to work out and the the state is basically a service to capital like it's so you have you have expanding capitalization in the realm of capital and commodity production and outside of that ring you have the expansion of appropriation and in order for the system to work or whatever, like in quotes, because we don't want, we don't want it to work, you know, but in its own definitions, in order for it to work, um, the outer ring has to expand faster than the inner ring does. And it's the state's task to do like cadastral mapping and um, reorganize society and to like, you know, dispossess women and this kind of shit to enable that kind of cheapening of nature to keep going. Uh, so as the cheap products can then be absorbed into capitalization. So it's, it's a kind of dual, dual loops that are kind of nested within, within one another. So like when, when social Democrats run on a platform of being better managers of the economy than the bourgeois party, they're saying we can do this stuff better than they can. Yeah, we can lay the ground better for you. Uh, it's a hell of a framing because, like, it's it, it kind of gets us past um, some of these, like, uh, you know, it's some of these focuses of like a very state focused kind of theory or a very economics focused kind of theory. It's like no, these these are like systems that are tied up in each other and perform services for each other. It's kind of a symbiotic relationship. The state machine. And the capital machine are like the the hippo and the little fucking bird that sits on his back and like picks off the lice and whatever. Um, and it, 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 it it's it's a much more convincing framing than like just like oh it's it's all economics or it's it's all state stuff. Um, this is this is much more like a dynamic compl- complex systems sort of uh, lens to look at it through. It's a kind of a, a specification of what is meant when it it said that the you know Marx and Engels say that the the state is a committee for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie, right? That's, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was going to say this really plays into a you know the, a long tradition of the, you know various Marxist understandings of the state, right? That the state and because when Marx says that, it's not just that. I mean, there's a whole history of that uh, of trying to understand this, which is that um, the state has to do things that it has capabilities to do for which capitalists and especially individual capitalists are is are poorly equipped to do. Right there, there are things that 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 individual firms and even capitalists at as a class are not well positioned to do. Right, um, and, uh, and and capitalists are, are constantly finding you know so called extra economic institutions, whether or not it is you know what we think of as traditionally the state or the integral state in a Gramscian sense of like you know building think tanks and policy wonk organizations that can interface with states. There are just certain things it can't do, and the military is a great example. Of that right if you need a military to go off and secure resources and extend territories and overthrow a government that wants to nationalize your copper mines in chile or something that's not something that that that's not something that uh uh that uh you know uh, uh you know shell oil or whatever is, is well positioned to do in and of itself right it needs uh another other type of apparatus mm-hmm 
so the the rest of this section is largely a sort of recap and uh, expansion on the historical account that we saw in the first article. Yeah, so it's yeah. I mean, you know, uh, we'll 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 get back to this uh, in the kind of critiques of, <laughs> of the article, but you know, certainly uh, Moore has a uh, a historian's lens that he is working through. Um, that's a strength as well as a weakness in some ways. Um, but uh, to move on to the next one, uh, geopower, geomanagerialism, and accumulation by appropriation. Um, so this is, I guess, uh, a very, a very much a kind of like Harvey esque, uh, <laughs> argument here <laughs> that he's developing. Right. Uh, um, so, uh, he highlights the importance of, uh, technologies of distance, uh, such as, uh, shipbuilding, geography, cartography, navigation. Um, and, uh, these, uh, are sometimes underplayed in Marxist thought, uh, right? Because like, uh, there's that emphasis on heavy industry, um, or, or the emphasis on like, just, yeah, basically handicraft transitioning into heavy industry. But, um, they're not thought of as productive technologies in, in so-called orthodox Marxism, right? Yeah. Like it's, um, it's somewhat unclear what the role is that they play in value formation. Um, and I would say, uh, you know, we're going to get more into this in the next discussion, but it may be somewhat unclear what they like in a scientific sense. It it's not very well specified what they do, like qualitatively, we can describe the behaviors that they facilitate, but how they figure specifically into value formation is still kind of a bit of a theoretical issue here. Um but you know he does give a he does give a much better account of like how important these things are, right? Well, like in his framework, would it be that like they um, lay the groundwork for value formation? Like there's there's a preparatory do, yeah. work that has to be done, um, and that like the value itself can't ever really totalize these things because it wouldn't. If it did, it would be a zero sum kind of thing. There would only be one dollar in the entire world or whatever. Yeah, and it should be noted that that that, that thinking through the fuzziness of or or you know like the uh, how how clear to tr try to understand you know how these types of um, these types of soft techniques or whatever produce value also does play into you know broader debates around some of the even some of the reproductive uh, theory that he's influenced by where people do debate right thinking of Silvia Federici and thinking of of gen you know okay what what is what is uh, for instance gendered reproductive labor is it is it actually is it social reproduction does it actually produce part of the value that goes into the commodity and i don't find those you know those debates are kind of interesting you sometimes you get a little too lost in the weeds there i don't think it's necessarily that necess necessary to come up with a mathematical representation but but that is that is a fuzziness or an ambi uh, ambivalence or ambiguity maybe um that uh that debates around this whole area of unpaid reproductive labor um uh the the, the, the that 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 sort of am ambiguity uh, extends to to that sort of dis, uh, discussion as well, right? You know, or certainly debates around whether or not there's ambiguity there extends to that discussion. Yeah, I was just kind of thinking about how like Wark wants to try to um, think about this as a fifth cheap, right? The the cheap information, um, which you know maybe you could kind of 
kind of uh, work into that sort of argument that's developed in platform capitalism about working up nature as a raw, uh, raw material. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting question, but uh, I don't think we're going to solve it here. It's, uh, <laughs> Marxists have been debating this forever. So, yeah, <laughs> I think maybe we can move on to unpaid work slash energy and the accumulation of capital. This is talking about the kind of specific mechanics of how cheap natures uh, become expensive and then how they are re-cheapened or other natures are rendered cheap enough, right? Okay, so it uh, starts off here uh, that, like mentioning unpaid work is really important. We know this. Uh, because this reality is suggested by the widely cited estimates on unpaid work performed by humans. Um, so this would be like UN Development Program and uh, other groups um, and, and the rest of nature. So eco ecosystem services. Um, quantitative reckonings of unpaid human work overwhelmingly delivered by women vary between 80 or sorry, 70 and 80 percent of world gross domestic product or GDP. For ecosystem services, between 70 and 250% of GDP. The relations between the two are rarely grasped. Their role in long waves of accumulation rarely discussed. Um, I would observe that unpaid work comprises not only the active and ongoing contributions to the daily reproduction of labor power and the production cycles of agriculture and forestry. Unpaid work also encompasses the appropriation of accumulated unpaid work in the form of children raised to adulthood largely outside the commodity system, for example, in peasant agriculture, and subsequently pushed or pulled into wage work, and also in the form of fossil fuels produced through the Earth's biogeological uh, processes. Um, so this does kind of get to what we were just talking about, right? Like trying to quantify this stuff. Uh, and, and just kind of like get a sense of, well, how much is there? How does this, what are the ratios at least that we can talk about, right? Um, and it, it, it does seem useful to actually like have that data there, right? Be like, oh, it's like 70 to 250% of GDP. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> can't dismiss that. It's a lot, it's a lot happening off screen. That's like yeah. trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars, uh -huh. right? Um, so he says, uh, the appropriation of unpaid work signifies something beyond the important notion of environmental costs and externalities as missing. Here we may work with feminist Marxism's powerful insight that unpaid work is not just there, but actively produced through complex patterns, power, uh, patterned relations of power, reproduction, and accumulation. So too with the unpaid work of extra human natures. Uh, so this is this talk about the free gift, right? Uh, angles. Engels comes up with this idea of the free gift, nature's free gift being used by capital. Um, but he's saying, look, it's it's not free. <laughs> There's a lot of work that goes into this. Uh, you got to put a lot of work into cultivating this stuff, right? Like in keeping it in line and, and making it ready for harvest. Yeah, totally. Um, it's a deliberate process. That was what we're getting at here is this. These aren't just accidents. These are deliberately uh, cultivated sort of things. And right like that, the the expulsion of people from the circle of humanity, like the, the, the gendered and racial stuff, is not, not an accident, it's deliberate. Um, and that the, the, the degradation of the biosphere is not an oversight, it is deliberate. That, like, 
it's not just that like oh capitalism it's going about its business and like oh, look it stood on a flower oh no that what what a terrible oversight if only if only it had seen where it was going it could have not stood on the flower it's like no it stood on it deliberately like it's this this is this is an active process of cultivating an environment for capital accumulation to continue yep, yeah right. i mean it, like when you when you look at like uh how say um liberal thinkers in europe prior to the refugee crisis uh, that was precipitated by the uh, Syrian civil war, um, used the language of race baiting um, in order to try to produce cheap labor, right? Um, they knew what they were doing, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, uh, that that's like a deliberate thing. Um, it's it, it, and and they were trying to render like in the in the language of this framework they were trying to render so-called migrants uh into they were trying to naturalize them right they were trying to exclude them from society um, and thereby render their labor cheap so kind of like following up uh he says uh Footprint metaphors mislead because they disregard the creativity of extra-human natures. They ignore how extra-human natures are also producers of historical change. Nature cannot be reduced to mere substrate or surface. I find it difficult to accept any concept that reduces the web of life to a substrate. This is how capital views nature. Its project seeks to reduce nature to mathematical abstraction. Life in the capitalist era rebels against these reductions and simplifications. Weeds evolve, horses refuse to work, viruses mutate, extra-human natures, in other words, actively refuse their designation as nature. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's like, I think this is one of the areas where Moore's uh, approach kind of indicates like a productive conversation that can be had with science. Right. Because you don't notice these things or you you screen them out when you're looking at reality from an economic lens. Right. What it, it, it's when you when you try to analyze nature in like try to get that that sort of parallax view that you get from scientific investigation, that some of this stuff can become revealed, if not related to the capitalist context in which it originates. Certainly in terms of um, Western cosmologies and epistemologies, right, where where outside of that, you don't have much way of, you know, because there's certainly, you know, there are non-Eurocentric uh, ways of knowledge and ways of thinking about what we think of as nature, right, that uh, in, 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 that that might have other ways of, of looking at that. But I think about my friends who, like, I've got a good friend who's a an earth uh, system science type guy. He's a, he's a biologist um, who works on basically stuff that's like kind of close to Gaia theory. He's interested in he basically like he's, he, you know, he get, uh, his lab gets money similar to how more would, would, would kind of scoff at from the forestry industry because they're trying to figure out why um, these monoculture forests that they replant after they cut everything down are so as hot as uh, or as as resilient um, as as the stuff they're cutting down, and what they what they find out is that he's he's like a, he's got some real hippie tendencies. He's all about uh, uh, like a lot of hippies like fungus. You know, they're all obsessed with the fungus, kind of like the geodesic domes of our day, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and what <laughs> <laughs> we're all gonna live in fungus homes, yeah, like in fucking Morrowind or whatever. 
There you go, right? But but what he looks at is really interesting because his lab is all about looking at these fungus substrates that exist in natural healthy forests that essentially allow, in his mind, trees to talk, right? Like trees. Yeah, talk. yeah, that's the that's the good shit. That's the yeah. good shit. But the thing is, if you would not, it is so easy to convince this guy, and also by the way, any climate scientist I've ever met, um, that like you don't have to work hard to explain to them that uh, capitalist economics. Uh, if, uh, you know, res- at, le- at the very least results in, or and, and you probably convince them, depends upon all uh, all of this other stuff that extra human nature is doing that is completely un- uh, uh, invisible or, Shane, as you were saying, off screen, because that is just like the reality staring him in the face every day. Like, like I think by inclination, this guy who I know quite, he's a really good friend of mine, wouldn't be a radical socialist by any means, but he's, he's much more in tune to shit, even like David Harvey and stuff, just because he's like, oh, wow. Like, this is what I study every day. It is utterly obvious that we are destroying it. And also that the way that the forestry industry that is funding his uh, work has no fucking clue. Right. Has no clue of the, the depth and richness of the relations in which we are embedded. Right. Which is which which motivates him in a really serious way, you know, through his research. I, I got to have a little digression here about the talking trees, because this is this this is this is the good shit. Uh, like <laughs> uh, like I, I was teaching uh, environmental ethics to my class and I brought up the talking trees thing. Like, you know, what you're just describing and and like everybody thought I was crazy. <laughs> like, no, no, like, I was like, no, this is, like, real science. Like, people are finding that trees, like, communicate through these, like, mycelial networks and shit and, and, and root networks and all this, like, and all this kind of stuff. And they're, and they're just like, nah, nah. Mm-hmm. Like, they, th- because they've got ural mind, you know? They've got, they've got yeah. dualist fucking poisoning, basically. Yeah. But, but, but of course, the, this is where I think it's interesting to think about how to relate to, as Kyle said, how to relate to the natural sciences because that my 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 buddy and his whole lab's understanding of this shit is at least partially coming out of the euro mind right like 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 they that is one thing that i do think and we'll get to it when we talk uh, another time about uh, uh you know some of the critics of more that's one thing where it's just like it is u- potentially useful like you can make like it is potentially useful to interface with that knowledge um because uh i don't know if all of the people doing the, who think of themselves as doing producing data on the life sciences I'm not convinced that they are as um, completely interpolated by a Cartesian dualist must dominate nature framework as is as is necessarily the, the case um, because because I, I think they could read some of this stuff and, and what we're talking about and be like fuck yeah we've been trying to tell you people this for the last 50 years yeah yeah certainly mm-hmm. yeah yeah so might be good to chill out. Chill out. We have we have like a little blurb here about more kind of going in on Earth science, um, but uh, you know it's we don't we don't need to get into that. It's it's just yeah. It's just is it contaminated through and through, right? Almost certainly yeah. not, right? Like in, in not not in total, but there there is certainly a bias, you know. The next section then kind of is I think is a so there has at least one little interesting bit that like he's kind of uh, you know talking about like how. Um, the like fossil fuels and stuff are kind of like produced by 
or like the, the sort of um, the, the, its hist- historical nature, right? Like it's um, the history of capitalism and the natures it produces, right? And like it's kind of um, its quest for resources and its kind of reevaluation of um, of objects. Like a coal goes from just being a rock to being a resource. Um, at least I think that's in this section. And again, this holographic problem with this fucking set of essays that like every point is in every section. So I'm not, I'm not totally sure where I am in the essay anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it says uh, the dialectic of abstract nature and abstract labor is at the heart of those historical natures that are cause, consequence and unfolding condition of world accumulation. This entails a shift from seeing nature as resource to seeing nature as matrix, as historical nature. Uh, does this mean we no longer need to talk about resources? Hardly. It does, however, mean we recognize the bourgeois representation of nature, of resources as things in themselves, as both a fetish and a project to create a specifically modern capital N nature. Uh, to move beyond the fetish, we may view resources as bundles of relations rather than geobiological properties as such, without, of course, denying those, these properties. Uh, the journey from geology to geohistory necessitates a historical method that grasps the material symbolic formation of power in human organization. Thus, a world ecological view of, say, coal's agency since 1800 allows us to distinguish the geology of coal from coal's geohistory, to discern geological from historical facts. Geohistorically speaking, whomever says capital in the era of large-scale industry implicates coal. Uh, yes, uh, those who say fossil fuels make industrial capitalism are not wrong so much as errant in the insertion of a non-relational object, coal, in the relational process of capital accumulation. I think this is this the section in which he gets kind of bong ripped with the like kind of relational agent. It was kind of like Latourian actor network fucking weirdness. Uh, or am I thinking of that wrong? Uh, 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 I think so. I think this is the stuff that like Bork gives him a fair bit of shit for. <laughs> yeah. There is a section in here where he talks about. Uh, so. Um, Historical, uh, or it's okay, so he starts out here, uh, what counts as a resource changes along with the oikeos, the relational, creative, and multi-layered relation of life-making. Uh, to mer- paraphrase Marx, coal is coal. Only under specific conditions does it become fossil fuel and come to shape entire historical epochs. My name for these specific conditions is historical nature. Historical nature is not an output of capitalism. Capitalism does not produce an external historical nature according to its needs, a functionalist position. Nor does capitalism simply respond to external changes in nature, a determinist position. Rather, phases of capitalist development are at once cause and consequence of fundamental reorganizations of world ecology. Both capital and nature acquire new historical properties through these reorganizations. Hence the couplet, historical capitalism, historical nature may be given real historical content. And blah, 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 dialectics. Um, <laughs> uh, historical, <laughs> historical nature is a question of how the layers of historical time, even geological time, shape each other. And then he goes over the, the, the issue of like, oh, you know, funny how uh, uh, Rome was dominant over the Roman climactic optimum or how uh, feudal, uh, feudalism prospered during the medieval warm period. 
Um, right, so in this alternative, cascading movements of the web of life enter into particular historical geographical configurations of power and production. If human sociality articulates these relations in its double meaning to connect and give to ex expression to, the biosphere is its integument. Um, in contrast to the widely held view of nature as nature in general, a more illuminating vantage point is offered by seeing historical nature as co-produced. So capital, labor, and power move through, not around nature. It's, uh, I like this kind of, um, I like this ontology. Like it's, it's so much more rich and like cybernetic than the, the ontologies that feed most, most theorizing, right? There's a, there's a lot to like here. There's a, there's a lot of resonance with our, our favorite boys, uh, you know, Pickering and Beer and so on. Um, I, and like he, he get. In the responses to this, he seems to get like kind of crucified for this kind of stuff as just her heresy, right? Like that, like to to put this much emphasis on relational, uh, systemic kind of stuff is is, is um, not sufficiently dialectical, comrade. But I'm I, I'm kind of with them on this. It gets a little bong rip, you know, like coal as an agent or something. Eh, I don't know, you know. Uh, well, when we get into Wark's critique, I think that works critique is specifically that uh, they, they don't, they don't like dialectics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. So uh, they're trying to look at it from maybe like a more like Deleuzian kind of point of view or something. Yeah. Um, but you know, like, you no, know. I'm just, just saying that they might, based on my understanding, um, you know, like they, uh, they, they theorized, they're one of the, uh, uh, the people that theorize that we don't even live in capitalism now, right? That we've transcended capitalism or a different system. And so it's, it's not unsurprising to me that Wark's critique, even though it would share some, some stuff in common, actually, with the Foster and Mom critique, also is coming from a totally different, um, a totally different perspective that would be, you know, maybe not as interested in dialectics, not as interested in finding ways to synthesize, um, uh, uh, the, the, you know, narratives of ecological crisis and narratives of, of, of capital accumulation and capital, capitalist civilization. Right. So, so it's it, even, even well, actually clearly, uh, themselves being quite uh, invested, or at least a little uh, more invested in um, the idea of metabolism and rift than 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 more is who wants to move away from that. So some of it kind of seems like a kind of epistemic slap fight in a way. Like it's kind of like who's who, whose reading are you going to do on on this sort of stuff? And it, like a lot of it to me read as if the there wasn't that much disagreement about the fundamentals, you know, but, there, but we'll, there, we'll get to there, that. There's some the really time. fundamental similarities that I think would have been more interesting for, for all of the principles to pick up as, as then a basis for having their disagreement as opposed to uh, who's the, who's the real sellout. Indeed. Yeah, totally. Who's the real Cartesian in this room? Yeah. Who's the real Cartesian the, in this room? Get the heretics out of here. So is there much to say about the next section value as project um, and process? Uh, Okay, so this is really getting into it uh, with the Marxism, right? So um, it says, uh, in the English language, value signifies two big things. First, it refers to those objects and relations that are valuable. Second, it refers to the notions of moral uh, morality, as in the fact-value binary that has loomed so large in modernist thought. Uh, Marxist deployment of the law of value is precisely aimed at identifying the relational core of capitalism grounded in the expanded reproduction of abstract social labor. This is all the stuff we talked about previously. Marxists, ever since Marx, have defended the law of value as an economic process that encompasses the first meaning of value, things that are valuable, right? Naming those relations that capitalist system deems valuable. 
And so it has been difficult indeed to argue that the operation of the law of value may encompass both meanings of value, right? So Marxist value is not uh, the value of right and wrong, right? Um, that is a that is a sort of standard Marxist point. Um, difficult, but not impossible. Uh, historically speaking, it is hard to deny that new knowledge practices, cartographies, botanical and agronomic science, modes of calculation, uh, blah, 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 have been fundamental to capitalist development. To introduce such symbolic cultural affairs into values relational core destabilizes the subjective objective binary presumed by most political economy. Right, so subjective value theory is what you would find in the neoclassicals and the Austrian school, uh, maybe the institutionalists. Um, objective would be the uh, Ricardians and Marxists. Right, the, those are the those are the the divisions in political economy. Uh, the objective world of value has been forged through the subjectivities of capital's uh, imagination. Value's calculative character is therefore a matter of capital deploying its symbolic power to represent the arbitrary character of value relations as objective. So there is a kind of encoding that happens where uh, value relations achieve an objectivity that could be described in political economy, I think is what what he's saying here. Yeah, it's kind of like they're sort of naturalized and they're they're kind of like baked into the culture in a way that like, oh, you know, like producing commodities has value in the like the technical sense um, of valuation, but it has a value in the moral sense that it is the right thing to do as well. Um, and that like partitioning nature in such a way as to make it available to that is also morally correct and good. And, and there's, there's a lot kind of going on here, but I, I think we've we've kind of maybe got the gist of it. Yeah, it's, mm, it's tricky. Well, and also the idea that for Kyle, as you were saying, that the neoclassicals, you know, when they taught with the subjective theory of value is also just based on there's nothing really objective to the production of economic value outside of the difference between one person, uh, difference between what one person is willing to sell a commodity for and what another person is willing to buy it for. And the interplay of those two subjective, um, those two subjective uh, uh, interpretations or, 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 or those two desires uh, meaning then, then multiplied a million times based on all the producers and, and uh, consumers in the marketplace, right? And all the different market decisions being made. Um, whereas, yeah, political uh, Marxist political economy following Ricardo, right, is, uh, and Marx is, is really indebted, is really integrated to the idea that there is something objective to the process of working material with labor power and then the excess uh, value produced uh, accruing to the capitalist because of property relations. Whereas I think, you know, Moore is trying, as you say, you know, as he's destabilizing all of that by thinking through all the cultural work that has to go into um, deciding um, what what is worth a dollar amount and what's not, right? And what is, what, 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 what's kept on, on the books and what's kept off the books, right? There's a whole bunch of cultural, cultural work going on there. Yeah, and, and, and so like, Listeners of uh, from Alpha to Omega uh, may remember the uh, Ricardian corn model, right? Um, the 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 basic model that uh, Ricardians use to uh, describe the mechanics of economic uh, production uh, and circulation and so on. Um, now, I think it, it might be useful to bring up the corn model uh, just to say, like, 
Well, the very fact that there could be corn in the corn model kind of gets to all of the things that Moore is bringing up here, right? Like the 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 Atlantic transfer, the uh, like you know adaptation of corn to uh, monoculture production, all that kind of stuff. All that needed to be necessary for Ricardo to even come up with a corn model in the first place. That stuff is fascinating, actually, uh, with these, this like, slightly later section where um, he's talking about botany and its kind of role in this kind of like uh, colonial conquest, right? And like the um, transplant of, of plants from the old world to the new world as, this, like, as these deliberate projects of like exporting the plants to a place where the labor is cheap or where, where there's slave labor, frankly, um, as this like deliberate landscape transformation. So and it kind of loops back into the, the ecological kind of stuff here, going down from the value form stuff to the ecological ecology stuff that like botany as a practice and like as um like a thing that like oh this is worth studying and worth quantifying and worth um analyzing in service of you know going overseas to fucking brutalize those people and uh and take take our whatever plants with us and stuff these are all deeply and intricately kind of um tied up in each other and he goes over the same stuff about the, the mapping and the the fucking um sailing stuff as well um but yeah, it's it's kind of nuts, right? There's another like really, it's it's kind of on the same point, right? That like um, talking about like quantification as a practice that emerges in these kind of historical contexts and like uh, and racism, right? That like you have um, you know the, the 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 bushel and the pound and the lash are all these quantities that are like. Um, you know, like bundled up together in labor slash land productivity uh, increases. And it's like, oh, we, we measure the amount of violence we need to do in order to get a measured amount of product productive output. Um, it, it's it's kind of damning, right? But it, 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 it's, it, I think we do have to then fall back to our, our usual thing that like, these things like do these practices do emerge with this this uh this regime of brutality but that doesn't exhaust all of their possibilities like quantification itself is not like stained by this association but we kind of do have to be honest about where it came from as well like like why 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 are people obsessed with measuring shit it's because they want to they want to fucking you know measure how many people they need to kill to get discipline on the work team again you know it's it's fuck it's 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 sickening really you know um, well, and it, and it opens up another possibility, and this is kind of where I think through where 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 I think Wark kind of goes, and we'll talk maybe talk about later, right? Is that uh, there's an interesting sort of idea too that, that I don't think Moore deals with too much, but it'd be interesting to see what his his, his response to this is over time as, as people challenge him on it, which is that you know you've got these tools that emerge to do all this really horrible uh, stuff that comes from this really horrible purpose, but they produce problems that sometimes aspects of those tools can be useful and understand. I go I, I, I back to that hockey stick graph, right, where it's like like there are you know like like capitalism in Europe, European Eurocentric capitalism and, and imperialism has created problems and create, create produced no, knowledge forms and technologies that have produced problems that are so massive and vast. And yet to a certain extent uh, that those same, you know, tools could be used to kind of measure the extent of the, of the absolute destruction. Right. But, but, but they can't be, um, I think where more is, is really on solid ground is that, that you, you can't think that through in an unproblematized way. You can't assume that that form of knowledge is natural, that it is some kind of uh, obvious and only way to understand um, 
uh, uh, the world as as it exists and our place in it, right? And that and that I think we're we're destabilizing those types of and and decentering those types of knowledge forms, even if you're still going to use them in certain ways, um, is is really an excellent project. I think that's a really important project, right? It's. I think. I think. I agree. Certainly, that it's. This is. Um. This is necessary and vital stuff. Uh, with all, with all those qualifications that, like, you know, it's. It's not a. It's not a call to like inhumanism or um, or primitivism, right? Um. Because I, I. The thing I've noticed over time is that like. You know. Um. I think a lot of folks on the left and a lot of Marxists are really stuck on this kind of like basically crude humanism, like a very Cartesian sort of old school kind of liberal humanism. Mm. And when you push back on any of these sorts of things. The first thing is like, well, oh well, you're you know you're just a fucking Landian anti-humanist fucking you know all all relative network fucking you know no no human subject at all kind of thing, um, or that like you know to to challenge the like develop the the way that rationalism and like quantification developed and its context is taken to be an, an attack on. The, the the possibility of reason itself you know it's like I, I find there's often a very twitch reaction to these kinds of um these kinds of uh, disruptions right like that this is this is a very important disruption but um i think in my experience like i've, I've just seen over and over again where this kind of stuff is dismissed in a kind of very twitch reaction and people kind of fall back on like no of, of, of course descartes was right the, the, the human subject is is in, entirely in, in control and all this kind of shit and i think it's fucking mm-hmm. hell guys like, mm-hmm. is this really the hill you want to die on like going back to fucking uh, the most crude and shittiest fucking versions of liberalism i don't know um yeah so this is this is provocative stuff it is very provocative um and I like it. I like it. I like a good provocation. It's uh, it's nice. Yeah, stuff. me too. Yeah. So th- this this does. Uh, th- there's another part in this section that he brings up that I think is relevant to what you were saying there, uh, Shane. Uh, so he says, uh, "Of course, the world does not want a world of economic equivalence. Life rebels against modernity's value slash monoculture nexus from farm to factory to finance." The struggle over the relation between humans and the rest of nature in the modern world system is necessarily a class struggle. Attempts to think class struggles abstracted from their geobiological moments will fatally undermine emancipatory projects. The struggle over the grip of commodification is, in the first instance, a contest between contending visions and values of life and work. Extra-human natures, too, resist the grim compulsions of economic equivalence. In this, capitalism's correspondence project meets up with all manners of contentious visions and resistances to create a historical process full of contradictions. So the project is neoclassical fantasy land. Everything is substitutable. Everything can be moved around. Um, the market can value everything. Um, and then um, the process is the Washington consensus imposing that as like a violent agenda on the world, right? Um, but there are these counter countervailing forces, right, that um, uh, come up against capital. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's working class struggle, uh, revolt of extra human nature. So the battle with weeds, a plant in the wrong place and troublesome pests, uh, <laughs> The pesticide-herbicide treadmill and its cognates is bound up with cheap nature strategies that hothouse evolutionary adaptation at the point of production and shape the condition of world accumulation. 
on the one hand, as the flurry of news reports on the super weeds sweeping across the GMO soy zones of the USA revealed in 2010-11, biological natures now appear to be evolving faster than the capacity of capital to control them, resulting in a Darwinian evolution and fast forward. Um, and this, this really just reminds me of like sort of very standard uh, theorizations of like the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. Right. That that the Romans had really great weapons and uh, organizational technology, and they used that to wreak havoc all along the Mediterranean. But as uh, sort of Germanic peoples and other other peoples uh, uh, came in contact with them, they had to adapt to what the Romans were doing. And eventually they got smart to Roman tactics and like. Just being in contact with Rome accelerated their strategic development. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, it's the back and forth, right, between trying to get the four cheaps cheaper and, and, and resistances that come in from all these different directions. Yep. Absolutely. Right. I mean, you could certainly see that uh, the, the the relevance of that in Canada right now with more talking about how indigenous peoples get relegated to nature. Um, and I mean, right now, I mean, you know, uh, right now, uh, Kyle and I are in a country in which uh, has been shut down by three weeks of rail blockades of a of a of a cross uh, Canada or cross Turtle Island indigenous protest network trying to stop a yet another round of accumulation uh, by dispossession or accumulation by appropriation of, of getting a pipeline through uh, uh, wet territory, uh, very close, not uh, reasonably close to where, not super close where I live, but, you know, close-ish. Um, and uh, th th really reading this stuff, it, that that section, it re that really hit me, right, where there's just this, uh, um, you know, even to think of, even thinking in terms of uh, of uh, the way that, you know, humans relegated to, to nature by, by the colonial state and uh, capital, uh, you know, don't take that sitting down and neither do all of the uh, uh, extra human uh, uh, nature. I mean, we see this. A, a lot out here, right? I mean, um, like I've, I have a friend, the same friend who talks about the fungus does believe that um, there are orca mothers being destroyed by, you know, whose, 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 whose families are being destroyed and, and, and uh, by a rising tanker traffic and stuff like that and, and cruise ships and stuff like that. And uh, where he believes that they actually uh, are increasingly engaged in protest. Yeah, I think this is kind of why I find like I find this so compelling, right? This call to um, to 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 think through all this kind of like this this deep embedment and the kind of like the dynamic system of capital and its like production of cheap natures and that kind of like constant multi-dimensional feedback cycle. Uh, to take all that seriously, because if you don't like, if you just focus on the uh, like value production in commodities, if you just focus on some narrow dom domain, or you just focus on like society and you fall into that dualism of thinking of nature as just this external thing that we're we're just ruining then all of those things become unthinkable like it's not possible to grapple with a lot of that sort of stuff unless we like actually kind of take heed what um moore is asking for here um well you get into like you know standard conservationism and and that kind of bullshit right that's right yeah yeah so that this it's a provocation that unlocks a whole new horizon of like just being able to think about things. I guess that's a that's a point that runs through these essays, right? That like cognitive technology is a thing, like a material force in the world, and the the ways that we conceptualize things matter. Um, 
and the ways we conceptualize all this stuff matter. And so, like, just sticking to the good, the good old faith of like what what's in Capital and in the the manifesto, um, it's just 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 not good enough. You know, it's like we gotta gotta really be able to to, to answer this call. Um, so the, the the rest of this essay is kind of like we're kind of running out of time here, but like the rest of it's 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 all really worth worth reading but like a lot of it is kind of like summing up and he's stitching the the threads back together again but it's a, a lot of it is stuff that we've already really talked through and um i think we're so like do, do we have any closing remarks on this like with with the um with the proviso that we will we will be coming back to this in a third episode about responses to this thing uh so kyle do you have, do you have any, anything in particular you'd like to close off on uh i mean yeah like I guess I've said most of the things I'd like to say. I think there is a uh, an important um, thread in Moore's argument that we missed uh, because, as, as as we said, it, it's it's recursive. It's it's very uh, <laughs> wild. Uh, you, you really got to struggle to, you know, classify and quantify <laughs> everything here <laughs> uh, in order to present it. But uh, um, there is a part of Moore's argument that talks about the relationship between uh, overproduction and underproduction. Um, so overproduction uh has to do with basically the uh, rising organic composition of capital, uh, which means essentially that um, profitability, like due to uh, proliferating investment in uh, fixed capital, in machinery and techniques and that kind of thing, um, you have a falling rate of profit because like the, the opportunities for profitability just become more and more and more marginal as things become more and more and more mechanized um, and, and production becomes more and more sophisticated. So that's that's like a very um, core thing that Marxists point to as sort of like a reason why we are currently in a um, sustained uh not depression, not uh, yeah, not a recession, but a depression, right? That it, it that profitability is very low, so pro- investment is just going to like speculative nonsense, um, driving up all our housing prices, but not really accomplishing much of anything in the way of uh, profitability breakthroughs. So that's like one side of the thing. That's a very traditional Marxist sort of thing, and the other thing is the underproduction, which is. Essentially, that the four cheaps are underproduced relative to the scale of capital accumulation. Um, so I just wanted to point out that, yes, he he has related these two dynamics to each other. They're already sort of mentioned by Marx as countervailing factors, uh, like they're like relevant to uh, the, the tendency of the parade of profit to fall. Uh, but uh, he develops it in uh, a lot more depth and, and scope. And so I, w- I would be interested, you know, with some of the other emancipation folks uh, who are like digging in way deeper on uh, the like transformation uh, problem and uh, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall uh, to, to just like kind of, uh, you know, talk over these ideas. Right. Like some people are really engaged in the in the the deep Marxology of uh, Marxist economics. Like, can you can, can, like you know what does that look like when you when you bring those two things together? Uh, I would like to see more of that. 
Yeah, and I think that's a good point too, because it's one thing we do know about the rate of falling profit school. It's extremely willing to bridge gaps between different uh, understandings of uh, capitalism and uh, the and the creation of crisis. So, well, I mean, it, like, you look at it, uh, you look at like you know the stuff that was covered in that uh, in that uh, reading series uh, about the subject, right? That that uh, from Alpha to Omega did. And like a lot of the a lot of the sort of like attempts to overcome the transformation problem in that they just became sort of nonsense. <laughs> so like I understand why uh, there is there is so much recalcitrance and and like you know like in some ways the the, the whole project of Marxist economics is kind of it like degenerate and like you know it, it's it's it, like as you said there's like very poor dialogue and very little resources and I would just be interested to see like, you know, some people that we know who are actually interested in this subject and open-minded and have like a scientific perspective on it, like take a look and, you know, like think through these ideas in a modeling sense as opposed to just a uh, qualitative descriptive sense. Yeah, you know, I think that is great. I was, I was just being a dick, right? There's a side <laughs> note that uh, I just, you know, I, 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 I there's, like folks like Kleeman and Ed Roberts, I was just thinking, you know, they, they, they can get very prickly when uh, engaging with it. I didn't mean to insult any of the people in your uh, in your uh, networks because I, I I find that school really interesting, right? And what they those folks do really interesting, but they're just a just hilariously acrimonious, uh, tr like notoriously acrimonious <laughs> relations. But yeah, oh yeah, yeah absolutely, uh, absolutely. But but I think I think what you're calling for is dead on in terms of, of trying to get these two these different branches of thinking through value um, to, to, to engage with each other because I think there'd be some really some really interesting stuff could come out of that so I, I definitely 100% uh, yeah so Bob any any other closing thoughts um, that we that we haven't really got to no other than just a general thing I, that uh, you know I mean I, I generally really like Moore's approach as he lays it out here it's made me quite excited to, to, to read the book in full which which I actually have on my uh, on my shelf right now um, and uh, and but also that I think that the general even when there's areas where I'm like I don't know about this or the, the broad attempt at, uh, the, the, the attempt to what he's doing is, is really interesting really important I, and I'll be honest I would love to see people even just work through more the notions of rural ecologies and ecological regimes and historicize that and 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 try to apply that kind of broad model of thinking um, to different times and places um, uh, because I think it's really an exciting way to, to try to understand how some of this stuff all fits together at a time when we really need to be doing that so so I just generally am into it yeah yeah I think um i I'm in agreement uh, I found the whole I think he he's very successful in what he sets out to do, which is to provide an alternative framing to the Anthropocene and like the his framing of the capitalocene is I think a vastly more productive uh, model. It makes a lot more sense um it seems to have a lot more explanatory force um I'm, I, I, there was bits I was like eh, a little bit on but i'm I'm willing kind of willing to forgive those because the the generalities are so good um with the caveat that I'm not really an expert, like I'm, I'm of the three of us here, I'm probably the most out of my depth with this stuff. So, yeah, shrug. I mean, if there, there could be something going on off screen that I'm not aware of that would completely invalidate it, whatever. Um, I think it is, and I think I'm also. It's just like the general framing of having, like, hey, what if we actually thought about uh, 
like human social organization, not as a single like anthropos, like a single kind of noun, but we thought about it as a, a complex interlocking network of processes, some of which have like really strong feedback loops that reinforce themselves. And then we thought of all of that as being embedded in the biosphere rather than being something outside of it. And what if we followed all those systemic implications all the way through? And what if we looked at it through a Marxist lens? And like, what if we thought about the different ways that these systems are related in value terms and so on? All of that's really fucking good. <laughs> and like, I would forgive more for tripping up on one or two of the details because just that the, the general, the, the, the general shape of the theory is so good. And it's, it's a, it's a kind of argument I'm extremely vulnerable to, right? Like a kind of like Im imminentizing ultra materialist kind of like, um, you know, rhizomatic fucking model of the world or whatever. That's the, that's, that's straight up my, straight up my alley. Um, yeah, fun. Uh, I guess we're out of time for this pair of episodes, though. Um, so thanks, listeners, for coming along. Thanks, Bob, for coming along. This has been wonderful um, to have you back on the show. Um, is there anything you'd like to let the listeners know about as, as the last word? Yeah, no, nothing really. I mean, other than thanks for having me on. Uh, this is it's always it was a blast last time. It's a blast this time. Uh, it was really, really enjoyable. Um, and I guess other than that, uh, uh, no, I don't think so. Indeed. Um yeah, cool. Uh, in the meantime, you can catch us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. We're on Facebook. Uh, we're on uh, the internet, generalunitsactunit.net, all that kind of crap. Um, you can catch our sister shows on the Emancipation Network, um, Swampside Chats from Alpha to Omega and Jumpsuit Utopia. They're all wonderful. Um, you go to emancipation.network and you can find all those there. You can get our Patreon at patreon.com slash generalintellectunit. If you give us a couple of bucks a month, uh, you will get access to our community Discord. It's quite nice. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff. A lot of good articles circulating there. So many, like, there's so much going on there that I, I can't keep up with it. There's way too much to read. Um, it's, a, it's a really wonderful community. Um, we, we say that every time, but it never stops being true. Yeah, yeah. It's a, there's, there's almost <laughs> a sort of metabolic rift going on there where the, the sheer, the sheer uh, I don't know, I'm not sure what I'm going for with that with that metaphor, but, you know, I, I, I can't keep up with the, with the, with the fucking uh, community. Um Actually, Bob, are you on there? You're you're in that Discord, right? I think I am, but we'll I I, I don't understand enough Discord, so I've got to, Maybe I am in. Uh, I got to start. I got to start. I got to start interacting. I think I, I, think I might have. I think I might have. Added okay, I got to start but, inter uh, inter interacting you know, with the community. We'll, it seems like we'll, you guys we'll are maybe run some tech mm -hmm. support. Yeah. It anyway, seems like you folks um, are always up to really awesome stuff on that uh, in that in that community, right? So I, I think I should get more, more yeah, involved. That's wonderful. Um, but yeah, thanks again. Uh, thanks, Bob, again. It's been wonderful, and we'll catch you all in a couple of weeks. Bye bye. Yeah, can't wait. Bye. Bye. Shane, I mentioned to Kyle before, but mm -hmm. I forgot to mention to you. Uh, you probably you probably should let your listeners know that I'm, I'm actually here today as a paid uh, Bloomberg influencer. Ooh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, this yeah, is my name. Yeah, for sure. He we can stick an ad at the end. Yeah, we can do a readout. <laughs> yeah, that's right. His, his team was very interested in how do we get to the most um, the most influential cyber uh, cybernetic Marxist influencers, <laughs> and I said, well, okay. I'm, you know, I'm going to be on there in a few, you know, so. Well, if Mike wants to cut a check, we can, we can talk about it. Yeah, totally.